tears on my pillow that won't dry on their road beyond my ears. I've no sorrow, but today I don't walk alone. Hello, and welcome to Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Study Group Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Uh, we have Joey coming up to tell us a joke. Welcome, Joey. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joey, and I'm your honorary joke teller. I've been out with the vid, but we're all good now. Um, thank God. So uh, anyway, um, probably too much. You didn't need to know that, but I just said that. It's okay. To the joke. So this was sent by our, faith, our faithful leader who is not here today. He's not feeling well. But um, here we go. A drunk staggers out of a bar and into a cathedral. He eventually stumbles his way down the aisle into the, into the confessional. After a lengthy silence, the pastor asks, May I help you, my son? I don't know, comes the drunk's voice from behind the partition. You got any toilet paper on your side? Anyway, thank you. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start a two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. Thank you. 
All right, uh, now we're gonna have our fog light prayer. If you don't know, it's not up on the screens, but you know, just, oh, it's right there. <laughs> um, all right, God. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news the book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked James to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Hi, I'm James, alcoholic. Uh, the terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. Months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a powder greater than themselves. There is more. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Um, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode or just turn them off. Uh, tonight we have Tom doing the second step, and uh, the first one was amazing. Never heard him speak before, and I cannot wait to hear what he has to share tonight, so please welcome Tom. lights haven't got any dimmer, have they? Yeah, that's all right. I got a solution. 
That takes care of that. My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. And Mike is a lousy joke teller, isn't he? So since uh, we're going to talk about God, that's what I love to talk about. I love to talk about God. I wouldn't be here without that. I'll start off with uh, a remembrance that I had that has a joke in it. Maybe you'll find a little bit funnier. I uh, I, uh, I got sober uh, December the 9th, 1983. And uh, I'm 69 years old. I'm from Peoria, Illinois. And uh, in 1991, I married a girl in the program in 1989, and in 1991, we had my 20th high school reunion. Uh, I graduated in 71 with my younger brother because I flunked the fifth grade. The nuns figured I should stay back a year, and um, I don't know good it did. But anyway, uh, there were people... I went to Catholic schools my whole life. Uh, I had a lot of catechism, you know, a lot of religious teaching. And we had a small Catholic high school. It was about 350 or so kids in that school, uh, boys and girls. And then Peoria had a boys' school and a, and a girls' school. And then it had a co-ed school. It's all one school now. Notre Dame. So I always tell people I went to Notre Dame. <laughs> Notre Dame High School. <laughs> and there were people in the class who, who who had died in that first 20 years from alcoholism, drug addiction car accidents and many of them were uh, uh, well loved by the kids in our class and a lot of the people that were close friends of mine and friends of theirs knew that I had been sober since 1983 and they knew too what a terrific uh, user and abuser I was. In fact, out of the 350 in that school, I graduated last. You know, so that's how I know it was 350 or 356 or something like that. They just wanted to get rid of me. You know, I, I think I'm... Uh, the state of Illinois, you had to have algebra. Well, I never had any algebra. You know, They graduated. They gave me a diploma anyway. I don't think they wanted me back the next year. The Army got me. And, um, but they knew that I was sober and, and had been since 83, and they asked me if after dinner I would um, speak about some of these people that were close to us. And, and not an AA talk, just a memories, you know, of, of them. And so I got up to, uh, to speak, and, you know, I wanted to break the ice with a, a little joke. And I'm Irish Catholic, you know, and 
and I grew up in the construction business, and I've, I've been in the laborers' union for 49 years now. I used to run the laborers' union here. For 28 years, I ran the laborers' union. I worked in the field for years. Before that, I grew up in it. My old man was a carpenter. My uncle was a bricklayer. Me and my brother were the laborers for them since we could hold a shovel in our hand because they were house builders, you know. And, uh, and anyway, uh, I told the story about two Irish laborers that were working in the ditch across the street from the house of ill repute. I'm sure you all know what that is. Uh, I don't need to get any more detail. And uh, Pat and Mike, and they could just barely see over the top of the of the sidewalk. That's how deep they were in the ditch. And there was a quiet street, and they were working on the sewer, digging in there. And they heard footsteps, and they peeped up, you know, and looked over the top of the sidewalk across the street, and it was a Protestant minister. And he was walking along, you know, and he got in front of the house, and he looked one way, and he looked the other way, and he didn't see anybody coming, so he ducked inside. And Pat said to Mike, he says, oh, my God, Mike, did you see that? A man of the cloth, no less, going into a house like that. And Mike said, I know, Pat, tis a shame, tis a shame before God, you know. And they went back digging. And uh, after a while, they heard some more footsteps, and they peeped up and looked over the sidewalk, you know, across the street. And there was a Jewish rabbi, and he stopped, and he looked one way, and he looked the other way, and he ducked inside. And Pat says to Mike, he says, oh, my God, Mike, do you see that? A Jewish rabbi, no less, going into a house like that. And Mike says, I know, Pat, tis a shame, tis a shame before God, you know. And they go back digging. After a little while, they hear some more footsteps. And they peep up over the top of the, the sidewalk, you know, and it's their parish priest, Father Murphy. And he looks one way and he looks the other way and he ducks inside. And Pat says to Mike, he says, Oh my God, Mike, Father Murphy. And Mike says, I know, Pat, one of the girls must be sick and he's here to give the last rites. <laughs> so, after I gave him a little talk, I went to school with a, with a fellow who was the complete opposite of me. He was uh, what we used to call a goody two-shoes, you know. I was a hoodlum. I ran with the hoods, you know. I had been since I was in the fifth grade. But this guy was, uh, you know, he was student council president. All the accolades, you know, he graduated valedictorian. He was given a, a scholarship to Notre Dame, the university. And after that, he'd gone to the seminary. Just like most good Irish Catholic families, just like mine, you, you had the Pope, JFK, and your cousins, you know, priests and nun. You got to have that in the family. Jerry Ward was his name, is his name. And uh, he comes making a beeline right to me. You know, I think, oh, I'm in big trouble. You know, I'm in big trouble. You know, he's, he's going to chew my butt out for the joke. And so I start right before he gets to me. I says, oh, uh, Father Jerry, I, I says, I hope you're not mad about that joke. And he goes, oh, no, Tom, I thought that was really funny. I'm going to use that myself. <laughs> 
He said, that's not what I was going to talk to you about. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, he said, I heard you're a friend of Bill's. And I says, I am. And he said, so am I. He said, you know, Tom, I thought I knew all about God. I'd completely lost my faith. I was that priest. Hearing confessions and giving communion, and I didn't even believe in God anymore. Drunk a quart of whiskey a day. And I thought I knew all about God. But you know what? The people of Alcoholics Anonymous have taught me about God. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Things happened to me over the years that that brought me and keep bringing me to where God needs me to be. Everything that's ever happened to me had to happen to me to bring me to the place where God needs me to be. That's what I'm here for, you know. Because this is where God needs me to be. And that didn't come easy to me, you know. Believe me, I wanted nothing to do with it. I'd had a stomach full of it. The nuns started on me in the second grade, the mean old Irish nuns. They were the toughest. I had a nun in the second grade that would grab me by my ears and shake my head violently. By the time the Christian brothers who taught us in high school were done with me, they would use their knuckles on you, take you out back of the school and beat the hell out of you. So I wasn't too impressed with the clergy or with religion. I'd had enough of that. And uh, it's funny that the very first meeting that I ever went to was in the in the back of a Catholic church. And I stood back there as I was talking last week when we were talking about surrender. I, I stood in the bushes, you know, and, and I had hair down here and a beard like this. I was 21 years old and I'm out in Coral Springs and, and thinking, what am I doing here? You know, I don't, I don't want to be here. And uh, like I shared last week, the, the greeter brought me in, saw me lurking around, brought me in. And then I, if you weren't here last week, I, I talked about, I came here 48 years ago. I was 21. And I've been sober 38 because I spent 10 years around Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason that I did was because I found out the first time it got me out of trouble. So every time I'd get in trouble, I'd run to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, progression was what caught me. The progression of alcoholism, it, it never gets any better. It only gets worse. The periods of time that I could spend out there, they got shorter as I went to the bottom faster. And the periods of time that I could spend in the rooms of AA, not doing the deal, they got shorter too. Because I can't stand to be in here, you know, with a, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer. They just don't go together. And I couldn't take it, you know. And, and uh, 
It got down to where I was, couldn't even put days together anymore. And I went to the VA hospital in Tampa, and they put me on treatment there. Like I was sharing last week. And uh, before I got there, and, and when I was there, those things happened to me that really brought the first step to me. When I saw, you know, that there were men there like me who had been there doing that for 20 years, 30 years, in and out of AA, getting off the streets up north, it's December, to come to the VA like it's a resort. Let's go, to, let's go down to the VA in Tampa, get off the streets of New York and Philly and Chicago and and go down and get three hots in a cot. Looking at them and saying to myself, you know, they're not dead. They're sitting in the same room, the same table I'm sitting at. And I'm not going to die. I'm just going to keep living this stinking miserable life over and over again. Yeah, I'm in and out of jails just like them for years. I'm realizing when I came to the realization that that my way didn't work. I I fully accepted for the first time that my way did not work, my thinking didn't work. So I was willing, I was willing, I got honest, I got a little open-minded, you know. It's very hard to get me open-minded. I'm not, I'm not real good at being open-minded, you know. And I, but I was willing. And I came out of that VA in... Uh, the man that I'm going to talk about, you know, is the man that put my hand in God's hand. He, he, was, a, he was a God man. You know, there's people in Alcoholics Anonymous who are God people. They, they're all about God. I was not all about God. Um, and they have Courage. I don't think I've ever known anybody else in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that had the courage this man had. Or the, the generosity and the love for other alcoholics. He made a, uh, a lasting lifetime impression on me. He saved my life. He saved my life because he brought me to God. He stood in my way when I came to go back to the old center house after coming home from the VA in Tampa. When I used to go to meetings in the American Legion up in Del Rey, in the old Alamo Central House. It was built in 21. Had no heat or air conditioning. Just some great big windows. Chris knows. Me and Chris known each other for 30 years. We used to go to meetings there. Fans. We'd sit there in the daytime sweating our butts off. And sometimes in the winter, you know, it'd be so cold at night, you could see your breath in there. And we used to say, man, you really want to really be sober to go to meetings here, you know. It was not comfortable. And uh, as I went to walk in 
to the door to go to the meeting, this old man, he was standing in the doorway. And as I walked up, I expected him to move, but he didn't move. He just stood there. And I looked at him and said, And he said, where are you going? I'm thinking, who is this guy? I says, what do you mean, where am I going? I'm going to meeting. He said, you don't want to get sober. I said, what are you talking about? I'm sober two months. He said, yeah, I heard up in the VA hospital on an abuse. That's easy. But what are you going to do now? And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I'm cussing in my mind, you know. What's the, this SOP? What's his problem, you know? Who does he think he is? What do you go? What do you mean? What am I going to do now? What are you going to do now? I said, "What do you want me to do?" In my defiant way, you know. It's amazing how how you could be uh, around here for all the years I was around here and never be successful at being sober and not have an ounce of humility. Not have an ounce of humility. Still be so full of ego and yourself. That you're being a smart aleck to this guy. What do you mean? What do you want me to do? He says, well, he says, all I want you to do is what I've been trying to tell you for years to do. And I'm thinking, who is this jerk? I don't even know this jerk. What's he mean? How could he? He doesn't know me. How could he be telling me something for years to do? And I said, well, what's that? And he said, get on your knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober. And I looked at him and I said, I don't see how that's going to do anything. And he said, how's your way been working, wise guy? How's your way been working for you? Has your way been working for you? And I'm still so full of ego that the, the most you can get out of me is, well, I guess you're right. I guess my way doesn't work. So he said, well, then, he said, I guess what you believe in doesn't make any difference then, does it? Because what you believe in doesn't work. So you know what? I'm not asking you to believe in anything. You don't have to believe this isn't about what are you going to believe. This is about what are you willing to do. Are you just willing to get on your knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober? You don't have to believe it. I'm just asking you to do it. Just do it and try to be sincere. Can you do that? You know me, I'm thinking, well, I can do anything I want to do, right? That's what goes on in my head, you know. I can do anything I want to do. Yeah, I can do that. He said, okay, just do it. And I did. Get a job. Go to work. Get a sponsor, he says. Read the book. Come to meeting every day. I said, okay. And that's what I started doing, and I lived with the obsession to drink, to use. I'd had that obsession for years. 
I'd had that obsession since I was 13 years old when I first found a bottle of wine in the woods and sucked it down and got drunk. All the years that I was around AA, I had that obsession. I, notice how I say around AA. Because I wasn't in AA. There's a big difference between being in AA and being around AA. People that are in AA are doing the deal. They're not just taking up a seat. They're doing the deal. They're working the program. We used to say, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is not for people who need it. It's for people who want it. Well, most of us say now it's not even for people who want it. It's for people who do it. Because you can want this thing too. And still not do it. So it has to be done. And so that's what I did. And I lived with the obsession to drink and to use. The thinking about it, you know. When's the next time going to be? What's it going to feel like? Where am I going to get it from? Who am I going to do it with? The thinking about it. That's the obsession. The thinking about it. It's always there, you know. And one day, like I told you, I was labor. I was working in Palm Beach on a building, underneath the building, digging ditches for the plumbers. And uh, they, they went to lunch, and I got up underneath, out from underneath the building. I went down the street to the 7-Eleven to get myself a sandwich. And... Uh, I came out of the 7-Eleven, and there was a car sitting there, and two other laborers were sitting in the car. And as I went past the car, they had quarts of beer between their legs and the Frisbee, and they were cleaning the seeds, you know, out of, out of the weed, you know, rolling joints. My eyes glued on that as I walked past, and I thought, walking back towards the job those guys are going to get high they're getting high and I got up underneath that building and I sat in the ditch and I was eating that sandwich and I was thinking and I was thinking I can't remember the thought came to me I can't remember when the last time was that I thought about it and I thought, how strange that was. And all of a sudden, I got chills all over my body, and, and I started to weep like a baby, sitting there in the dark underneath that building in that ditch, because it came to me. It's gone. What I'd been thinking about, all those years since I was 13 was gone. And I didn't even know when it had left me. And I knew that that was God. That God showed me his power because he took it from me without my even knowing. And I came to believe I went to a meeting that night 
and they were talking about prayer. There was an old man who used to work at the beachcomber. He's been dead for years now, Ed McGarkey. And Ed said in that meeting, talking about prayer, he said, you know, he said, uh, prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes people. People change things. And right then, it was like I got hit with a two-by. I thought to myself, what a jerk I've been my whole life. My whole life, I've been expecting God to change things for me. Expecting God to do things my way. To meet my demands. And he wouldn't do it. And that's why I resented him. You know, I didn't know who I was. I learned sometime later who I was when a man was in an AA meeting and I was in. And he told his story and he said he was a God hater. And when he said that, when he said I was a God hater, I knew who I was. I knew who I had been. That's who I had been. I had been a God hater. Because God didn't do things my way. What's wrong with this God? Why does this God let things happen this way? Why does God reward people that don't deserve it? And punish so many good people? Why, why, does, he, why does he do that? What kind of God is that? You're trying to tell me about this God? And I don't, I don't want to hear what you're going to say. The next morning, I, uh, you know, when I got sober, AA did not have its own daily book. They, they didn't have daily reflections. The people I got sober with and the days I got sober with, we used the 24-hour-a-day book. And I still use the 24-hour-a-day book. And... Uh, that day was the day that I found who my God was. December the 17th. Remember, I told you God sober December the 9th. This is more than a year later. This is December the 17th. I pick up the 24-hour-a-day book, and I read in it, it says, The way of faith is, of course, not confined to AA. It is for everybody who really wants to live. But many people can go through life without much of it. Many are doing so to their own sorrow. The world is full of lack of faith. Many people have lost confidence in any meaning in the universe. Many are wondering if it has any meaning at all. Many are at loose ends. Life has no goal for many. They are strangers in the land. They are not at home. But for us in AA, the way of faith is the way of life. We have proved by our past lives that we could not live without it. Do I think I could live happily without faith? 
Then this, what, this is what really got me, the meditation for the day. And the man who wrote the 24-hour-a-day book was an Oxford group member. And he quotes the Bible often in the 24-hour-a-day book. And anything he puts, you know, in parentheses is a quote from the Bible. I think this is from Matthew. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God does not interfere with the work of the natural laws. The laws of nature are unchangeable. Otherwise, we could not depend on them. As far as natural laws are concerned, God makes no distinction between people. Sickness or death may strike anywhere. But spiritual laws are also made to be obeyed. Our choice of good or evil depends on whether we go upward to true success and victory in life or downward to loss and defeat. I pray that I may choose today the way of the spiritual life. I pray that I may live today with faith, hope, and love. And when I read that, I knew what my problem had been and the reason that I had such a resentment towards God because I didn't understand. You'd think that a smart Catholic kid like me that had catechism every day would know these things, don't you? You won't hear me say I'm a recovering Catholic. I won't say that. Because there's plenty of Catholics that that, that they're fine with their religion. I'm not a religious person. But I am a very spiritual person. You know, uh, the kind of spirituality that I have today is what my whole life is about. It's what it's, it's what it's all about. It's all about that. You know? I, uh, it's funny that, that probably the, the biggest influences that I have besides the big book and the 12 and 12 are all Catholic priests. Father Richard Rohr. Father Thomas Keating, and an old fellow by the name of Father John Doe, who back in the 40s wrote the Golden Books and Sobriety and Beyond. And uh, so much of what he says, you know, and I, I read Sobriety and Beyond the Golden Books years ago, and, and I still I read them constantly. So much of what he says just opens me up to what life is really all about. I remember the first time I read the quote that he wrote that said, the purpose of life is to purify us, not satisfy us. And I thought, man, this guy is a real hard ass, you know. What, we're not supposed to have any satisfaction? Because 
and you see, the reason why that that hits me so hard is because that's what I believed that life was about. That life was supposed to be about satisfying me. When I first went to Arizona, uh, I was telling Kirk that before the meeting that I was looking at a meeting list. And I found, I found this meeting, you know, I, was, I could look at names of meetings and I could kind of tell you what the group's about. <laughs> I've been around for a while. And there was a meeting, there's a meeting on Saturdays in the Unity Church on Arizona Street in Prescott. And the name of the meeting is The Hole in the Soul. And soon as I saw that, I knew that's a meeting for me. You see, I'm a hole-in-the-soul guy. You know, I had this big hole in my soul all my life. And I was always trying to fill that hole all the time. Trying to satisfy my desires, you know. Because, I mean, after all, you got to get what you want to be happy, don't you? If you can't get what you want, how are you supposed to be happy? And so, you know, I've spent my, my life just shoving everything in that hole, man. You know, alcohol and drugs and money and money, property, and prestige, you know. I mean, I just kept shoving everything in there. And it didn't seem to ever matter how much I put in that hole. It could never be filled. I just couldn't fill it. And I was talking with this man who brought me to God, you know, and I I told him, I said, I don't get it, you know. And he said, well, you got to learn to manufacture happiness. And I used to think, he's crazy, you know. I mean, I always did think he was crazy. What's he mean, I got to learn to manufacture happiness? What's that supposed to mean? I, I mean, I thought that that's what I was doing. I thought that I was manufacturing happiness. Okay? I mean, I, I got to get the right girl and the right job and the right place to live and the right car. You know, as a matter of fact, that's all I was doing for years around AA. You know, that's the reason why I kept coming to AA. Was to get my stuff back that I had lost from my drinking and using. Right? I mean, all I wanted to do was... Get a job back, get a girl back, get a license back, get a place to live back, get a car back. Just, you know, get the judge off my back. Get my folks off my back. All, all the, this, you know, the problem is with me is, is that I think that this can be fixed on the outside. That somehow, you know... They wrote this story in this big book about me. My story is written in there. I am the guy who thinks that I can rest satisfaction and happiness from this life if I just manage well. If I can just get things my way. If people would just do what I want them to do. If the world would do what I wanted it to do. If people would treat me the way I'm supposed to be treated. 
I'd be happy. We'd all be happy. You'd be happy too if you'd do things my way, okay? Let me tell you how to do things, okay? See? I come here. How did I act when I came here? I came here, you know, 10 years of, of bouncing in and out. I'm here, and, and now I expect you to kiss my butt. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here now. Okay? What's the matter with you? You know, how many times did I tell the people in the meetings, how many times did I tell the people who love me that this time's going to be different? That, oh, you don't have to worry about it now. I got this. I got it. But really, I mean, I wasn't here to change. I was just here to get my stuff back. And once I got my stuff back, what did I need to be here for? I mean, it's, everything's good now, right? You know, in the central house, if you go in the central house, we always had big anniversary night. We have a big chalkboard in the central house. And everybody writes their name and their years, you know, that they've been sober on the chalkboard. And the last Thursday of the month, we have a big anniversary night and give out medallions. And if you look at that chalkboard, and I've been doing this for years, if you look at that chalkboard, and you'll see all of these people that have one year, the majority have one year and two years and three years and five years, and then all of a sudden it starts to go down. Where's those people? There's only a couple with six years and maybe a couple with seven and maybe one guy with ten and then all of a sudden there's this big blank spot till you get to a few old timers. What happened to all those people that started out so full of enthusiasm? What happened to them? They let the life that Alcoholics Anonymous give them take them away from AA. That's what happened to them. Because they're strictly the material people. Like I was. Strictly the material person. Materialistic. Not spiritual. Not about God. But about getting my stuff back. Because that's what I need. To be happy. Don't you understand? This is what I said all the time. Don't you understand that I know what I need? I know what I need. This is what I talk to myself. This is the disease of alcoholism that talks to me. It talks to me. And it talks to me in my own voice. And it says to me constantly, you got to get this, and you got to get that, and you got to fix this, and you got to fix that. Don't you know I wake up every morning with that alcoholism? Don't you know that alcoholism is talking to me before I ever even open my eyes? It's talking to me, telling me what I need to get, what I need to have, 
what I need to accomplish, that if I don't, things aren't going to go well? Where'd God go? My sponsor, he's real fond of saying, every time you come to him with a complaint, he says, where's God in this? (laughs) Where is God in this? Where is he? What happened to those folks? Where'd they go? I guess they got well. And I told him, I says, well, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what my problem is. And he, Dennis told me, he said, well, your problem is you think, you know, that you know what you need. But you don't know what you need. You only know what you want. You're not capable of knowing what you need. You're just human. So how are you capable of knowing what you need? Only God knows what you need. Only God. Are you, are you going to surrender? Because that's what this is about. It's about surrender. Surrendering myself. Am I going to surrender? Am I going to do that? Or am I going to keep running the show? Am I going to keep thinking that I know what I need? God doesn't know. Oh, God, I guess God doesn't know what I need. Doesn't he know what I want? Let me tell you, God. You just need to do things my way. Right? I told myself that my whole life. And, and how did your way work, wise guy? That, 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 I can't get away from that. 38 years, I still can't get away from that. When I wake up, and the alcoholism's talking to me because I wake up with untreated alcoholism. I have to talk back to it, and I said, how's your way working, wise guy? You want to listen to yourself? Where did listening to yourself get you? It got you drunk. So you know what I need to do? I need to roll out of this bed onto my knees and ask God for the strength to stay clean and sober. And he told me, he said, and that's all I want you to ask for. You don't know, you don't, do not need to tell God what you need. Because he's God and you're not. He knows what you need. You don't know what you need. You only know what you want. Makes sense to me. Sounds logical to me. I have a logical mind. Sounds logical to me. I mean, I I became a believer in that. I came to believe. This is what I came to believe. I came to believe that I didn't know what I needed. I only knew what I wanted. And I was a fool if I thought that that was going to bring me happiness because he told me, he said, happiness is a byproduct of living right. It's a natural thing. You won't find it in any person, place, or thing. It doesn't exist there. It exists in living right. And I said, well... I guess what you're saying is I don't know how to live right. That's why I'm I'm unhappy because I don't know how to live right. And he said, that's okay, Tom. We got a program for right living. It's right up here. Here's a program for right living. If you follow this way of life, it's a program for right living. 
and you'll, you'll begin to live, right? <laughs> I love this. Uh, I pulled something out today I wanted to share with you. This is from uh, Divine Therapy uh, in Addiction, Centering Prayer in the 12 Steps, Thomas Keating. He's, he's interviewing, a guy in AA is interviewing him. TK is this guy's. No, that's Thomas Keating. TS is, says, uh, one of the greatest discoveries I made when I came into AA was to find out that I had a disease. Many of us at the beginning think of it as a moral issue or something of that nature. Just to be told that I have a disease and that while there is no immediate cure, we're on the road to recovery here in AA, gave me so much hope in the beginning. Father Thomas, would you address the human condition concept and perhaps describe for us how this deeper understanding of ourselves could be introduced into the early stages of recovery? I like part of this that Father Keating answers. He says, hope is very closely related to openness to the higher power because it is precisely because it is precisely because we depended on ourselves we depended on ourselves and our emotional programs we have emotion we have emotional programs i said well that that makes a lot of sense to me in our emotional programs for happiness right I'm dependent on my making myself satisfied and making myself feel good. That's what Father Keating's talking about here. My own emotional program, my program, not the AA program, my program for happiness. And our own emotional programs for happiness that we got sick in the first place. Oh, that's how I got sick in the first place. By my crazy ideas. My ideas for happiness. These programs are misguided. And are mostly based on the instinctual needs that a young child has. For security, approval, and affection. And power and control. What a child has. This is not where happiness is to be found. But when one puts an enormous amount of energy into finding happiness there and it is withheld, then off go the afflictive emotions of grief, anger, fear, discouragement, shame, guilt, and others. When our programs are frustrated, then other complicated emotions like envy, jealousy, vanity, ambition, pride, greed, apathy, and anger take over. All of these painful emotions make us unhappy. As long as we have an enormous emotional investment in one of the emotional programs then every time one of them or all are frustrated, we recycle the same old feelings of anguish. 
we make ourselves unhappy. We make ourselves unhappy by going after what we think is going to make us happy. We're the cause of our own unhappiness when we think we're doing the thing to satisfy us. Then we feel pushed into a position of acting out in order to get away from the pain or at least to relive it. Acting out only reinforces the whole vicious cycle which constantly causes us to make the same mistakes and to ruin one relationship after another with God, with ourselves, and with other people. If you would just do things my way. And then I wonder how come I have so much problem in life. I have problem in life because I won't let God in. I won't let him cure me because he can cure that. And that's what I had to learn. I had to learn that the hole can't be filled, but it can be healed. And only God makes that possible. Thanks for letting me share. time. And uh, now we have Mark coming up to do the secretary's report. Hi, my name is Mark, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going to go around. While the basses are going around, I've asked Barry to come up here and read the recovered statement. Oh, there he is. Hey, Barry. Um, we read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So here is Barry. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Barry. This is a recovered statement. We're not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured? That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned, consequently we have recovered. Thanks, Barry. 1940-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of Alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. <clears throat> Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Good numbers. Uh, does anyone in the room need a sponsor? <laughs> Would you stand up and go, not to embarrass you, just so the women here can see. Uh, what's your name? Welcome. 
someone could get with her after the meeting, that would be great. Please join us Monday nights, the Big Book Study Meeting, where the Big Book comes alive on the third floor of this building. Fellowship starts at 6.30. Big Book Study starts at 7.15. In the back there, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. We meet every Thursday, starting promptly at 7.15. We ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. We also have a 75-foot... No smoking in front of the door rule. If you could, just go down there. There's a receptacle. See you all next week. Thanks. Um, I'd also like to invite everybody to the Monday night big book study. Uh, and to those whom wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up down the center aisle. And now let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light. 
blessings when I go to sleep at night and I dream now. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
dignity. Got one man that just won't say. 